Thanks for listening to this Ave Maria radio podcast. Be sure to share it with your friends and family and across social media. Building the church so we can bless the nations. This is Ave Maria radio. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. C.S. Lewis is uh, the 20th century's probably most versatile writer, uh, writing uh, everything from uh, popular apologetics to uh, high literary criticism to children's novels. And uh, he continues to be a source of fascination for Christians and non-Christians, too. Uh I don't think there's anybody who is more effective at communicating the Christian faith to a popular audience over the 20th century. And uh, we've had many people over the years sharing what they've learned about Lewis, uh, not only his life, but insights into his work. And I just came across a book that I haven't seen anything quite like it before, and it, it portrayed an aspect of Lewis's thought that I thought was really worth taking some time and getting familiar with it. Uh, my guest is Dr. Uh, Marsha Daigle-Williamson, a professor emerita at Spring Arbor University, where she taught English for over 25 years and won numerous teaching awards. She serves as translator for the preacher of the papal household, has translated 16 books from the Italian and uh, two from French, and uh, she's pub- has, uh, publishing over 40 articles, profiles, and reviews, She's been presented, she has presented at the International Congress on Medieval Studies eight times in the past 10 years and has been a member of the Dante Society of America. And we're looking at Reflecting the Eternal, Dante's Divine Comedy and the novels of C.S. Lewis. Marsha, good to have you here. Thanks. Well, it's good to be here, Al. Thank you. Uh, Your interest in C.S. Lewis begins when? Um, I was converted in 1968. And 1968, and then became a Christian. And then um, people encouraged me to read Lewis. Now, I had read screw tape letters before because that was very popular, mm-hmm. even among secular audiences. And uh, I think I began with uh, the Narnia Chronicles and then read Mere Christianity. And well, one book just led to yeah. another. And he, I found him to be a great help in my spiritual walk. Yeah. Did he, did he also interest you as, as you went on into academic work? Was mm-hmm. he a model for you? Uh, in terms of what? Well, he was a, a, a skilled in his field oh, of literary criticism. Yes, yes. And Yeah, well, I did appreciate his literary criticism as well and uh, did some studies on that as well. Yeah. But it was his uh, his novels and his theological writings that really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And when did you develop a love for Dante? This is very strange because the summer that I got converted, I had already registered for a two-semester class in Dante. Two-semester class. At the University of Michigan, where I was getting my Ph.D. And uh, I also found that Dante was great for my spiritual walk because anybody who reads the Divine Comedy in any of the Italian versions, there's uh, two inches of Dante and then eight inches of footnotes in the rest of the page. (laughs) And a lot of those footnotes were scripture quotes or scripture references. So I was having to look up the Bible every minute. And I found that I read a lot of the Bible just from having to take that course in Dante. Wow. Uh, People have said that... um Dante, the Divine Comedy, maybe the greatest single Mm -hmm. work in literature? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
I I think so. Yeah. Um, okay. Because uh, it's artistically perfect, and it's also theologically perfect. And I think for me anyway, I did experience the Holy Spirit coming through yeah. the verses that I was reading. So for me, it's an anointed work as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've heard this. Uh, uh, it's actually one of, the, one of the blind spots in my own experience. I know mm. very little mm. uh, about the fine comedy. Uh, but is, is the world that, is the universe that he presents... Mm-hmm. Uh, a Thomistic world? Is it? How would you describe it? Uh, it's Thomistic to some degree in terms of the fact that uh, he uses Thomistic theology and concepts, but it's really a medieval world because yeah. it's the Ptolemaic universe. Okay. So it's a combination of the world physically and scientifically as they knew it back then, mm-hmm. but it is completely infused with Christian theology, Christian truth, and biblical principles. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's it's. Did you find it amazing to see how thoroughly steeped in scripture he was? Uh, yes and no. I was aware that uh, medieval people were very steeped in scripture okay. in a way that people today are not, and they just took Bible for granted back then in terms of everybody has to know it. Yeah. Uh, what is the Divine Comedy? Why is it called comedy? What mm-hmm. are the three? Yeah, the books three realms. Of it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, It's called a comedy because, according to Aristotle's poetics, if a story ends well, then it's a comedy. (laughs) If it doesn't end well, it's a tragedy. tragedy. So if it ends well, it's a comedy. So this starts off with a pilgrim who has to go through hell and purgatory to reach heaven because he needed to repent. He had been a sinner, and this was his way back to righteousness. Uh, And so it's a comedy because he, at the end, he is united with God. And so that certainly ends well. It's called divine, not because he called it that, but uh, in the 16th century, publishers decided to add that adjective to it, and it just stuck. Interesting. Because, uh, and it does distinguish it from other books that would be comedies the way that we normally think of a comedy, a funny story. Right. But uh, the publishers that had done that, the name just stuck afterwards. Now, are there, are the, are they divided into three books then? Well, uh, it's really one poem, The Divine okay. Comedy, and it's got three major sections. The first is Inferno, or Hell, Purgatorio, which is Purgatory, and the Paradiso, which is uh, Heaven. And each of these sections has 33 subsections, which are called cantos. Uh, Inferno has one extra because it's an introduction for him getting started on the journey. Yeah. And so you end up with 100 cantos for it. And for the medievals, 100 was a perfect number, and so it recounted the perfect journey. Uh, Who was he? Dante was a a 13th century fellow who wrote poetry, was born and lived in Florence. Um, Mainly the poetry that he wrote at first was love poetry because that was very popular at that time. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he got he was involved in politics and got himself uh, oh, accused by the other side of um, bribery, which wasn't true. But anyway, he ended up being exiled from Florence under pain of death. So he couldn't come back. 
And so he ended up in Ravenna on the northeast coast of Rome, of Italy, with people having to support him because he couldn't do anything. So he did get some patrons, and it was in that situation that he wrote the Divine Comedy. Did he know what a great poet he was? Yes. He did? Okay. Well, part of it, yes. When I say that, uh, you know, he knew that he was good at the love poetry, but he really underwent a conversion, and I think it happened after his exile, and he really had to think things through because his earlier love poetry, you know, borders some on the secular at times. Yeah, okay. And the Divine Comedy, there is nothing secular about it at all. So I think that he had some sort of profound experience of God, and he really converted and really repented. Um, and so the Divine Comedy really is his story, but it is told in such a way that it applies for every man. His pilgrim is really every man. This is the journey that all of us have to go through. And the journey in the inferno represents a rejection of sin. Purgatory represents the uh, cleansing of vice and the building of virtue. Mm -hmm. And uh, the paradiso represents growth in knowledge and understanding of God. Uh, are the are the punishments in hell related mm -hmm. to the nature of the sins? Yes. Uh, each of the sins in hell, he has. there are nine circles in hell. Some of the circles have subdivisions. The idea is that different sins are separated out in hell. And so in some ways it is a discussion of sin. Um, three of these circles in hell, the lower ones, have subdivisions as well, and there are separate punishments for the sinners. Mm -hmm. Each of the punishments in hell... It's called a contrapasso, meaning a counterpoint. Mm. And it is uh, basically the sin itself stripped of all the glamour of the sin so that what they chose, they have for all eternity. Whoa. For instance, um, those who shed blood um, are standing in a river of blood, and depending on how much blood you shed, you're up to your ankles, your waist, your neck, or you're submerged. Oh. This is what you chose in life, so this is what you get for all eternity because Dante was very strong on free will. Mm -hmm. We freely choose to keep sin. We freely choose to um, be united to God. Our free will is paramount. Um, I'll give you another example of um, a contrapasso. Sure. Uh, those who committed sexual sin, adultery, uh, fornication, it's a separate thing than the homosexuality sin, but... Um, those people are buffeted about for all eternity on winds because they let the passion in their hearts buffet them around. Wow. Okay. And so each of the punishments in hell is meant to cause the reader to think about what does this tell me about this particular sin. Oh. He doesn't spell it out. The reader has to figure it out. This but, is a, yeah. yeah, so so this is this is a a powerful work of imagination. Yes. Uh, but it's theologically, it's very, uh, it sounds very tight. I mean, it, 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 Absolutely. that kind of depth thinking Absolutely. about um, fornication and adultery mm -hmm. uh, and seeing it as being buffeted about yes. is really remarkable. Yes. I, now, in purgatory, are the souls in purgatory aware that they're saved? Yes. You can't go to Mount... It's a mountain that has seven ledges that correspond to the capital sins, the seven capital sins that are common to all mankind. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you have to be purged of the vice, but that's not enough of the tendency. You have to also be growing in virtue. Mm. Okay. So the idea is that all the people that have gotten to Mount Purgatory have repented of sin, 
but our fallen human nature still needs to be cleansed. Yes. And so uh, on each ledge uh, of the mountain, there are seven ledges for the capital sins, uh, there is a certain punishment and examples of virtue. So for instance, on the first ledge, which is pride, um, the souls there are bent over halfway with big burdens on their backs. And the idea is from uh, Isaiah that the Lord will cast down the eyes of the haughty. So they can't look up. They have to look down. So this is a physical, visual manifestation of that particular verse in Isaiah, and Dante does that a lot. Mm -hmm. While they are carrying these burdens and they're walking around looking at the ground, obviously, they are looking at carved examples of humility. Hmm. And so there will be an example from ancient classical times, one from the Old Testament, and one from the New Testament, generally involving Mary. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Hold it there. Uh, we'll come back on the other side. My guest okay. is Marcia Daigle Williamson, reflecting the eternal, Dante's Divine Comedy, and the novels of C.S. Lewis. Getting familiar with uh, Dante's Divine Comedy to begin with. Next section, we'll uh, uh, go into the novels of Lewis. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Dr. Marsha Daigle Williamson. And taking a look at her book, Reflecting the Eternal, Dante's Divine Comedy and the Novels of C.S. Lewis. Dante, arguably, uh, his Divine Comedy being the greatest work of literature. Uh, I know people say Shakespeare is the greatest writer, but I'm talking about a single, a single work. Uh, the Divine Comedy is often held up as the greatest single work of literature. It's an extended poem is what it is. And uh, Dante travels through uh, hell, purgatory, and paradise. He's um, uh, before we go any further, though. Mm, translations, sure. yes. Um, There's lots of translations. Yes, there out are there, lots of translations. I out must there. have a dozen of them. Okay, and I haven't read any of them. Right, I understand <laughs> that happens to many people. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, I would uh, suggest the Mark Musa M U S A. Okay, it's a three-volume paperback. I believe it's still available on Amazon. And the reason I like that one, it's not a literal 100% accurate translation, but uh, it gives you the idea of what's going on. And at the end of each canto, of which there are 100, there are wonderful notes that both tell you about the history and also tell you about theological concepts. So I find that uh, reading with Musa is very good. Another translation that I thought was very good was the John Sinclair, and that's quite old. That's from the 40s, 30s and 40s. Um, Again, a three-volume paperback. And the distinction there is that he has the Italian on the left and the English on the right, and he does not do, like Musa, a poetic type of translation. He does a prose translation. Okay. So I find that he's more accurate if you wanted exactly what is Dante saying here. Mm -hmm. And at the end of each of his cantos, he has a discussion of the spiritual and theological themes in that canto, Mm -hmm. and I found that very helpful as well. Okay. But to start off, I think maybe Musa would be everybody's best. Okay, very good. Uh, Who is Virgil, and why is he uh, Dante's guide? All right. Virgil was a Roman poet. 
Uh, he was the best poet and the chief poet of antiquity and of the Roman Empire. He wrote a poem called the Aeneid, which traces the history of how the Trojans, who had to leave Troy at the fall of Troy, uh, established and founded the Roman Empire. So Virgil is, for all Romans and therefore Italians, um, uh, the most august poet, if mm-hmm. you will. Okay. So um, Virgil wrote in Latin, and of course Dante could read Latin, and Virgil was an excellent poet. So Dante had steeped himself in Virgil, and so he learned a lot of poetic techniques from Virgil. He learned There's also a section in Virgil's Aeneid where Aeneas, the hero, goes down into the inferno. So he's oh. already done okay. a—this is already a role model for Dante, if you will, of someone going into the afterlife. Is it odd that a pagan poet would be Dante's guide through— Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Inferno, uh, Purgatorio, and the Paradiso? Well, he's, uh, here's the thing. He's only the guide for Inferno and Purgatorio. Okay. When he gets, Dante gets, the pilgrim gets to the top of Mount Purgatory, Beatrice comes down from heaven and leads him there. And the reason is that the pagans could understand about sin and that it was good to reject it. Virgil can take him and lead him and guide him for that. Mm-hmm. The ancients understood what vices were and that virtue was good. So Virgil can take him through that, but Virgil doesn't know who God is, and he doesn't understand how God works. He doesn't understand salvation, so he's not able to guide the pilgrim in the Paradiso. So then who is Beatrice? Beatrice was a a woman in Florence. It's a very unusual story. A woman in Florence that Dante first saw when he was nine. (laughs) And when he saw her, he experienced love, God's love. So she was a channel of grace for him. Uh, He saw her perhaps one or two more times. She ended up marrying somebody else. It's not clear if he ever even spoke to her. Wow. Uh, He married somebody else. They were slightly, they were in slightly different levels of society. And she died an early death. Hmm. So um, she was about 24. And so... She was already in heaven. So yeah. when he's writing the poem, she's, you know, dead. So she can be along with the saints up there. She was a channel of grace for him in life. And in death, that's what she still is it, in her death and as she's in heaven, that she continues to fulfill the same role for the pilgrim that she had done for him on earth. It's the same parallel with Virgil. Virgil had guided him as a poet in life, so in the, in the afterlife, he guides him through the afterlife, you know, the two sections. Mm-hmm. And Beatrice, as a channel of grace, carries him through the Paradiso and explains things as they go. Let's go to C.S. Lewis now. Okay. His uh, area of expertise as a literary critic was, I mm-hmm. guess, medieval and Renaissance literature. Yes, it was. So he was intimately familiar with Dante. Yes, he was. Did he love Dante? Yes. Okay. Dante was his favorite poet. Really? Yes. Okay. So Lewis is an incredibly prolific writer. Yes. Uh, you've looked at his novels and how Dante mm-hmm. uh, thought uh, imagery that emerges mm-hmm. in Lewis's novels. Yes. Was this del- conscious on his part? I would, I would argue that it is conscious on his part okay. because there are just too many parallels yeah. for it to be accidental. And he had a great memory. He, well, he remembered he where remembered, things came from. Yeah. He remembered everything right. that he read. Right. Apparently, he had that kind of memory. Yeah. And he read 11 languages, and he remembered everything <laughs> he read. And he, if you read his letters, 
of which there are three volumes of a thousand pages each. Yes. When he's writing letters, he's doing it quickly, and he, the quotes just come right off his pen. I mean, he doesn't even pause, you know, know, and he just quotes from every, you know, pagans, Bible, you know, all centuries, all writers. So, yeah. um, so. I believe he was very, very aware. Now, there were a couple of times people wrote him letters and said, hey, you know, this reminds me of Dante, this scene. And he would write back and he'd say, yes, I had Dante in mind. Yes. But if you didn't ask him about a particular thing, he didn't make any comment about it. Mm -hmm. So I argue that he did this consciously. Uh, he understood Dante very well. He understood the literary techniques, and he was also understood the theology. When did it first uh, dawn on you that mm. he was that steeped in Dante? Well, it didn't dawn on me at all. What happened was I needed a dissertation thesis for <laughs> University of Michigan. I was in comparative literature, and I kept coming up with topics that my uh, dissertation director didn't like. So <laughs> I, I just asked the Lord. I prayed, and I said, I need a topic. So um, I had already gone through my two-semester course, two course in Dante, and I just happened to be reading Lewis, uh, and he had three essays on Dante. Uh, and as I was reading that, I thought, you know, gee, Lewis is talking about Dante. And you know what? Lewis has all these journeys in his stories, and Dante is a journey. So maybe I should just look at the journey between Dante and Lewis and just compare them, you know. And I could not believe what I found once I got started. I, it was You're incredible. You're glad you like the idea? I'm sorry. You're yes, <laughs> yes. My yes. My director didn't care about Lewis because you know he wrote for Christians, so he was no good. But Dante, okay. Now that was important, you know. So, um, uh, so it didn't dawn on me at all until my topic was approved and I started doing research to just look at the parallels and make comparisons between them, and I I was astounded. And when I did that back in the 1980s, I did find some things. But when I came to write the book again, to rewrite it and edit it, I found twice as much as what I had found wow. in the 80s. Wow. So uh, I do say at the end of my book, I'm not sure I found it all. Yeah. You know, yeah, sure. and so sure. uh, I hope others are going to be out there finding more and more and more because I think this is. My book is just probably just an open door that people can go through into a much wider land. Uh, so let's let's take the first. Um, I think this is his first work of fiction. It's the allegory. Uh, yes, Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Regress. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which people recognize as a takeoff on Pilgrim's Progress. Right. Uh, right. And talk to me about Lewis's use of Dante in mm -hmm. okay. this autobiographical allegory. Right. Um, this was the first novel that he wrote. He wrote it in two weeks, visiting his friend in Ireland. Uh, now, amazing. when we say allegorical novel, it means that the people that he meets represent states of mind or thoughts, philosophical schools. They're not real characters. They're flat. Same thing with the places that he goes to. They don't represent real places. They represent um, spiritual realities. Well, give me an example. Okay. Um, for instance, he meets Mr. Enlightenment. Mr. Enlightenment. Okay. And he, he goes to um, Cruel's Land, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so all the place names, Puritania, uh, represent religions, philosophies, schools of thought. And what he took from Dante, because Dante was not uh, in that kind of allegory, what he took from Dante for this book was the fact that the 
the map of the world represented spiritual reality. In Dante, um, the sun represents God. And so if you're in the dark, you're in hell. If you're in purgatory, you're climbing towards the sun. And if you're in heaven, you're with the sun. Nice. What uh, Lewis took here was that east in his world represents truth and west represents error. So a journey from east to west represents different types of errors. And just like the sins in the inferno uh, are separated out, the uh, kinds of error that people can fall into are also different kinds of things. Does, is Lewis a better fiction writer at the end of his life than he was at the beginning? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so he this, does get, he, he grows he, as yes, a writer. Yes, he does grow, and he does apologize to many readers who write to him and say we didn't like it or we didn't understand it. And he said, I, w- I didn't know how to write well when I started this. And he said, um, and so I don't blame people who don't understand that book very well. Um, let's go to the science fiction trilogy, sure. Out of the Silent Planet. Was sure. that his first in the... In- um, in the trilogy? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, he wrote Out of the Silent Planet, but then also um, Screw Tape Letters and the Great Divorce kind of figure in, in some in between. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, the chapters are listed chronologically there. So, okay. So yeah. Out of the Silent Planet then yes, is, is, is his is next. The first in that science uh, fiction trilogy. Yes, it is. Yes. And uh, talk to me about Dante's universe in Out of the Silent Planet. Uh Dante was coming from the medieval Ptolemaic universe, which meant that the Earth was at the center, and each of the planets revolved around the Earth in what was called crystalline spheres. And then uh, you got to the fixed stars. There was one sphere that went around the Earth like that. That's the constellations. And then another invisible sphere of the prime mover. Okay. So how is Lewis then going to be modern with his uh, universe? Well... The rolling spheres in Dante are rotated, the planetary spheres, by angels. Hmm. And what Lewis does, there's no more spheres in the modern universe. Right. But each of the planets in his trilogy has a large spirit, which is like an angel, that rotates the planets. Hmm. Because the planets are there. They're left. So his uh, angelic uh, eldos, is what he calls them, are very much parallel to Dante's angels and what they do. Uh, hold it there. We'll come back and continue conversation. My guest again is Dr. Marsha Daigle-Williamson, reflecting the eternal, looking at the novels of C.S. Lewis, and seeing Dante's Divine Comedy. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Taking a look at Dante's Divine Comedy in the novels of C.S. Lewis. Lewis, of course, arguably the most uh, effective and popular Christian writer of the 20th century. Uh, Dante considered the greatest uh, writer, or at least his Divine Comedy considered the greatest literary masterpiece in the West. And uh, my guest, again, Dr. Marsha Daigle-Williamson, is the author of Reflecting the Eternal, which looks at the novels of C.S. Lewis and sees uh, Dante's Divine Comedy in those novels. We were talking about his uh, Pilgrim's Regress and then the beginning of the science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. The Screwtape Letters, uh, mm-hmm. I think that was the book that eventually brought him to notice. Yes, over uh, here in America yeah, anyway. Yeah. In 1943, he was on the uh, cover uh, of Time magazine, yeah. uh, a little drawing of Lewis's head and uh, 
a little devil on one shoulder and an angel on another shoulder. Yeah. So screw tape letters became a big hit over here in America, and that kind of put him on the map in terms of people knowing about him. Yeah. So here. Now, uh, this is, um, again, these are all very different types of literature, screw ta- well, imaginative literature, but very yes. different. Screw mm-hmm. tape's letters are the uh, a master devil uh, advice to yes. his... Uh, the younger yeah. devil that he's mentoring. Yes, correct. Um, Lewis said that this was a difficult book to write, to yes. get into the character of the devil there. Right, because uh, you have to do everything backwards. Right. All the blacks are white and all the whites are blacks. And yeah. so you have to reverse everything. And it's that's probably hard on the brain. I haven't tried it, but I believe him when he said it was sure. difficult to write. Uh, again, uh, how does he draw upon Dante for this work? What he does here, um, because it's not a novel that has a, a, a journey to you know another place particularly, what he does is he draws on the concepts of the, suffer- the um, punishments of hell, the contrapasso. And so the punishments for all sinners uh, reveals the sin that they are, are committing in Dante. And what Lewis does in the screw tape letters, there's really only one main punishment for sin and is to be eaten and consumed by devils. Mm. And the idea is that you, when you yield to sin and you yield to the devil, you're giving yourself over and you're letting yourself be absorbed. And one interesting point is there's only one place where a devil is eating a soul in uh, Dante, and it's at the very pit of hell, and it's Satan who is gnawing on oh. Julius Caesar, Brutus, uh, Cassius, and uh, Judas. Judas, Cassius, and Brutus, yes. So, so there, that's the ultimate... That's in, the ultimate worst in, punishment is to be gnawed on by uh, by Satan. In, and in, so Lewis picks this up and he makes it the one punishment for his hell. Yeah, yeah, very so. good. Paralandra is the uh, second in the science fiction uh, trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, just uh, show me the parallels with Dante there. Uh, in Paralandra, uh, the same character in Out of the Silent Planet who learned that there is evil in the universe gets sent to Paralandra to, uh, he doesn't know the mission until he gets there, but there is a new Adam and Eve that have just been created, and uh, one of the, uh, a very wicked man from hell also lands there, and it turns out that Ransom, the main character, is there to assist the female Eve of the planet uh, in resisting temptation. So um, what we have there is, in some ways, uh, paradise retained because it works. Mm. Uh, Eve doesn't fall, and neither does her husband on this planet. Uh, And other uh, connections to Dante are that uh, the main character goes through uh, a process of purification, and he has to have all of the virtues on Mount Purgatory to help her to resist her temptation and all of those uh, all of those parallels are there wow. and then at the end of the novel um, when he meets the Adam and Eve of Paralandra uh, it recalls the scene of the pilgrim meeting Beatrice in the Garden of Eden in Dante's poem uh, on many levels and in many ways and then at the very very end of Paralandra he has a vision of ultimate reality and it's a compression of many of the images uh, and, and teachings of the Paradiso in Dante. Um, the third uh, novel in the science mm-hmm. fiction trilogy, That Hideous Strength, yes. deals with um, the awesome 
power of technology mm -hmm. and uh, how does that play into Dante or how does how does he draw upon that from Dante mm -hmm. on something which is focused on technology right well um, what you have there is that Bellberry which is the technology science institute that is really ruthless uh, there are many parallels between the characters there and characters in hell and what happens to characters in hell so that um, you get a whiff of hell from these people okay. uh, and Dante is an overlay on that if you will uh, the other things that happen in the book, there's a married couple, and they are the main focus, Mark and Jane. And each of them is not uh, living a righteous life, but they each have different weaknesses and different strengths. So Mark um, joins Bellberry because he thinks he's going to get a good job. And as he, as he is there, he commits more and more sin. He falls, and he, the things that he does wrong parallel each of the nine circles in Dante's Inferno in that sequence. And so the nine circles of wow. hell is the journey for Mark uh, as he, wow. but then when he gets to the end, he doesn't end up in hell. He comes to his senses, sort of like the prodigal son, and he realizes this is wrong. Something is really wrong. And, um, and he repents. And then his wife uh, isn't, she's got different weaknesses. She's got pride, anger. She's got a lot of the fallen human nature stuff tendencies. And so for her, her journey is a purgatorial journey. And so uh, the, some of the ledges on Mount Purgatory are exactly the kinds of things that she needs to go through one by one. Hmm. And there are many parallels between her and some of the souls in purgatory. And I believe that Lewis did that on purpose to show that. The Great Divorce. Mm -hmm. This is the um, bus right. ride. It's a kind of purgatorial bus ride to heaven. Right. Talk to us about right. that. The Great Divorce deals with the state of souls after death. And so a lot of critics have said, oh, The Great Divorce is really Lewis's divine comedy because it deals with the state of souls after death. Well, yes, it does. And it is like the divine comedy, but so are all of his other novels, except just in different ways. Um, the way that he, this is like the divine comedy. It's a very short novel. It's only 120 pages. And Dante's poem's over 14,000 lines. <laughs> but... What, what Lewis does here, and he doesn't do it in other books, he will take uh, two scenes and he'll smush them into one. He'll take two characters and he'll combine them into one. He'll take three events or more and combine them into one. And so what you get is a highly condensed version of the Divine Comedy. Uh, the guide for the narrator, MacDonald, actually represents a blend of five characters in the Divine Comedy. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. He's Virgil because okay. he's yes. leading him through purgatory. Right. He's Beatrice because he's going to lead him to the mountains. Yep. He's uh, Cato, who is the guardian of Mount Purgatory, who's sitting on a rock with a long beard, and he's the first person that uh, addresses uh, Dante and Virgil when they get to purgatory. And that's the exact description of McDonald. He's sitting on the rock, and he's got the... Yeah. The description is meant to be Cato. Uh, <laughs> and then... Um, at the end of the Paradiso, Cacha Guida is a character who is an ancestor of the pilgrim. And as he talks to the pilgrim and gives him his mission, mm -hmm. uh, he gives him his mission to tell everything that he has seen. And MacDonald, at the end of the novel, tells the narrator, now tell everyone what you've seen and heard here. And then at the very end, uh, the last scene we have of Cacha Guida, his face, uh, he, his light uh, sort of brightens and he's flushed like the sun. And that's the description that's given of MacDonald the very last wow. time we see him. 
and um, there's another one. Who else? Oh, he's like the angel at the gate of purgatory. That was the fifth one. Uh, there are some of the things that he says that are parallel. Okay. So in different ways, uh, Lewis blends characters, events, settings, yeah. scenes, yeah. dialogues. So he collapses. He collapses. Into one exactly. Yeah. So you get a mini version. Mm-hmm. Chronicles of Narnia, uh, mm-hmm. maybe the most read uh, work of fiction of his. Yes, at, um, this, at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the relationship between... Again, the Divine Comedy Mm -hmm. in the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. The main um, source that he used, I think, for, I I should say the main sources, would probably be The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer and Thomas Mallory's uh, The Mort d'Arthur, which tells of the King King Arthur stories. However, once you get to The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which Lewis thought was going to be the last one, because when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, he thought that was it. But then he wrote Prince Caspian, he thought that was it. And then he wrote Voyages of the Dontrader, and he really thought, okay, that's really it. And so that's why in the Voyage of the Dontrader, Oslin reveals that he is on Earth and the children need to learn who he is by another name. And so Aslan is revealed as Jesus. Mm-hmm. But, so Lewis thought this would be the last one. Well, the first part of the Voyage of the Dontrader, first of all, it's a voyage, uh, is based on the Purgatorio. Mount Purgatory has seven ledges, and the uh, trip by the the children and the Narnian king uh, go through uh, six islands, and then a well, they begin with three islands, the Lone Islands. Then there's six islands consecutively, and on each of those islands, there is some sort of temptation, and some that they have to resist, mm-hmm. and some virtue that they need to grow in. So even though the voyage goes from west to east. In the Narnia Chronicles, east is the dwelling of God. So going eastward is the same as going up heavenward. And so as they keep going eastward, uh, they're getting closer and closer to God. When they get to the world's end where nobody has uh, sailed beyond that point, from that point on, all you get is is the Paradiso. Uh, I've counted 15 parallels in terms of what happens to Dante's pilgrim as he's journeying up to see God and what the children experience as they're going east. Uh, And the difference is that with Dante, it's more spiritual and, you know, uh, he, he doesn't walk through the paradise. He is drawn upward by his spiritual thirst. So it's sort of a spiritual gravity law. Well, the children don't have to row their boats from this point on because the current draws them. (laughs) And so many of Dante's uh, physical um, symbolic images and and concepts become literal with the children in in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Let's go to Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces, not my favorite book. Not, not your favorite? Not my favorite How book. How come? Uh, because I, I prefer clarity. Yes. And okay. uh, all his other books are very clear in terms of the Christian message. With this one, it's a little fuzzier, but it appeals to some people in terms of the fact that it's more imaginative. So it's either people's favorite book or it's their least favorite yeah. book of Lewis. Yeah. Partly because it is uh, deals with a pagan queen, and so how can you have Christianity being taught through all of this? But he does. Lewis manages, and it does work. Uh, it is a pagan queen who um, needs to be cleansed of her sins. She's got fallen human nature, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, there is a God that she does turn to at the end. But as we know, uh, there is only one God, and it is Christ. Uh, and so that particular God does represent Christ in that novel, which Within that support, purports to be pagan, yeah. but yes. Uh, we just got a few minutes, a few seconds left here. Okay. Um, you think that you there's still more to be unearthed mm-hmm. in terms of Dante's influence in Lewis? Oh yes. Wow. Uh, because uh, I found half of these in the 19, as I said in the 1980s, and then later I just found more. And actually, I've been coming across a few more little things. Yeah. But uh, I'm not very poetically sensitive, and so people who are poetically sensitive in terms of poetic structures and things, yeah. I think will be more sensitive to Lewis and find things like that for him. Reflecting the Eternal, Dante's Divine Comedy, the novels of C.S. Lewis, Marcia Daigle Williamson, thank you.